This episode contains spoilers for Hitchcock's 1959 film North by Northwest and some strong language. If that's alright with you and you don't think I'm lying or being duplicitous in any way, well then please, enjoy the show. Mr. Townsend, were you home last night? You mean in Glencove? Yes. No, I've been staying in my apartment in town for the past month. Always do when we're in session here. What about Mrs. Townsend? My wife has been dead for many years. Oh, I... Look here, Mr. Kaplan. What's this all about? Well, forgive me, but who were those people living in your house? What people? The house is completely closed up. There's just a gardener and his wife living on the grounds. Now, Mr. Kaplan, suppose you tell me who you are and what you want. Okay, look. I, well, do you know this man? And scene. Fuck yeah. Nice. <laughs> Almost knocked over the drink there. Uh, yes, hello. Welcome back to Movie Mixology. We are your hosts. I'm Pat. I'm Marissa. And we are going to be talking about a film featuring a drink that is either from or inspired by said film, where we watch and enjoy both very, very greatly. Woo. They say the seventh podcast episode is like the 27 club, you know, like, you know how like if you're a rock star, you don't live past 27. Oh, gosh. If you're a podcast, you don't live past seven. Oh, wow. Yeah, but we've made it. <laughs> <laughs> so props to us. And what a better movie to think about than a, like darkly morbid tale than the movie that we're going to be talking about today, which is 1959's North by Northwest, which is one of our favorite movies um, that we've really discovered recently, uh, along with just, you know, the works of Hitchcock. If you are not familiar, Alfred Hitchcock, one of the great movie directors of all time, has directed classics like this one, uh, Vertigo, Psycho, Rear Window, Rope, uh, strangers on a train. Those, I mean, just I'm just rattling a few off the top, but there's mm -hmm. probably a ton that we've never seen, and we highly recommend you check them out. North by Northwest is currently streaming on HBO Max. Um, yeah, HBO Max has become the new like classic movie channel. It really <laughs> when has. they rolled out HBO Max, they're like, here, have all the classics. Yeah, we're not sponsored by them, but yeah. uh, you know that'd be cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, it's it's just been great. If you're a movie fan, highly recommend. And the drink, the accompanying drink that we are going to be having, the one that we have right in front of us, is the Gibson. And we're not talking about the guitar brand here. This is the cocktail. We've got ourselves a pretty straightforward one that's easy to make. Um, you know, it's basically two and a half ounces of gin. I use some Gordon's dry gin, still getting that mileage out of that Gordon's. Um, <laughs> and then a... Um, a half ounce of some vermouth. Uh, and I used uh, Martini and Rossi vermouth. You know, you can get it at most places. You go ahead and you pour that into a cocktail shaker with ice and you stir it. This is our first stirred cocktail on the show. Wow. Yeah. And then you garnish with not a, not a olive like a regular martini maybe, but with a cocktail onion, which I didn't even know they were a thing. I did not either, and I must say I'm not a fan. Really? <laughs> yeah, tell me what you think of the Gibson, because we poured them in these martini glasses. Yeah, so at first I think, uh, you know, with my first sip, I'm I'm always like super eager, and I'm like, oh, this is pretty good. But then as I started drinking it more um, throughout the movie, I could taste the oniony taste more and more. And I like onions, you know, like in my tacos and stuff, but I'm not a huge fan of it in my drinks, I'm realizing. Um, yeah. And I think that, I guess, it's interesting to me how this is like a cocktail, but I guess you, it can be a cocktail even if you don't have, if, if you are mixing together alcoholic beverages without any sort of like mixer or sugar or anything. Um, but 
you know, I think that for me, not that I don't like drinking, you know, straight drinks um, too, but I think it's basically just like a big shot, like <laughs> with an oniony taste. Uh, I know probably a lot of people would disagree with me, especially people who really like gin. Um, but unlike the other gin based drinks that we've had, I think this one's just kind of it's lacking a little bit for me. But I think that's why some people really like it is because it is so simple. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of agree with you, but I kind of like this one a lot, actually. I, I think the onion kind of does it for me. I, I, I disagree that it, it makes the drink a little weird um, because when you're drinking it at first, you're right. It just tastes like, you know, gin. But then you get to the bottom and that onion gives it this like very unique flavor. And I love onions. So this is kind of a <laughs> this is cocktails are like onions. OK, <laughs> they got many layers. And this one has a pretty, pretty sweet layer at the bottom, which is, I, I think it's pretty good. Yeah. Do we want to talk a little bit about the scene that the Gibson is featured in? Of course. And the scene where this is appearing in North by Northwest happens about, oh, I don't know, an hour into the movie or so, about halfway through. Mm-hmm. When Cary Grant is our main character, Roger Thornhill, running from the law and taking a train from New York to Chicago... And when he gets on the train, he it basically finesses his way. This movie, we're going to get into it, is all about finessing your way into places. <laughs> and he does so onto this train that spans half the country. And while he's on this ride, he goes to a dinner cart, meets a woman uh, who he thinks is just like a happenstance meeting. Little does he know it was planned. Uh, and he sits down and this fancy, uh, you know, dinner cart and he orders a Gibson. And I'd never heard of a Gibson before now. And then what do you know? It starts appearing like everything we've been watching. You know, we uh, recently watched The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Great show. Yeah. Uh, Everyone, Patrick and I have started playing chess now. It's true. (laughs) The show is that good that it makes, you know, not that we would probably wouldn't be interested in anyways, but it kind of reignited our childhood interests in chess. It's true. And the Gibson (laughs) is featured a lot in that show. So we had to do this episode. (laughs) Simply had to. Yeah. And I have a question based on what you just said um, about this scene. So I know we're going to talk about um, Eve's character and everything and how um, her and Roger, Cary Grant's character, um, interact in the movie. But you said that their meeting on the train was planned. And I was wondering, I was wondering about this because I understand that, you know, the plans did start where she is working for um the government you know as a spy with van you know to spy on the bad guy van dam and that her you know meeting and and telling you know and getting together with Cary grant's character roger was definitely part of the plan but i wasn't sure watching it if it was originally planned that they were going to be on the same train like i think that them running, I may be wrong, but I think that originally him running into her when he just hops on the pl- train, at, when he first meets her before the dinner car scene, um, he just says, oh, you know, you know, they they brush past each other, basically. I think that was not planned. I think that she recognized him and realized, oh, this is the guy that you know, is being mistaken for the spy. And so she made her plan from thence for from, you know, there forward. I may be wrong, but because otherwise I don't understand how she would know that he's going to be on that specific train at that specific time. Fair point. The reason that she knows that he's going to be on that specific train at that specific time is because she's working for Van Damme and Van Damme has been following him from the United Nations and they know that where he's going, they know to be on that train. So, okay, I guess I didn't catch that. So when... Um, when the guys kill Thornhill, the real Thorn, the real um Townsend, Townsend is in the killed United Nations, yeah. in the United Nations. Van Dam follows um Roger. Roger all the way to the train Correct. and onto the train. Like they have eyes watching him all the way through that. Correct, because a few scenes later, you see that she sends a message to the him in his own private cart. Right. So he's on the same train. I How as- else would he know? I assumed that. That was just happenstance. Like, yeah, I th- assumed that once they realize they're on the train, they're like, "Oh, great!" But I guess not. No, your because theory makes more sense. I just didn't catch the connection there. No, if you want, 
like we can erase all this because I'm just going on about the like confusion about the theory. But that's okay. <laughs> um, but you know, that's what this movie is kind of uh, famous for, right? Is like the mistaken identity and kind of the confusion with that. And the first time around watching it, I mean, you can definitely follow it, but it's like a roller coaster. You know, you're trying to figure out is he really this spy? Is he not? You know, who is who? And everybody's changing names. And I think that's like a big part of the fun. And I don't know if for people who haven't seen it, maybe we can give like a just a very brief description of the plot. Okay, sure. So um, let's go and see if we can do this in less than a minute. Okay. okay. So Roger Thornhill, advertising executive in New York, is has his identity mistaken for somebody named George Kaplan. And he gets thrust into this plot where people are trying to kill him because they think he's George Kaplan, despite him protesting he's not. And as it turns out, George Kaplan is a fictional figure created by a government agency, whether it's CIA or FBI, whatever. Um, in order to kind of scare this criminal named Van Dam, who is selling state secrets and trying to escape the country with them. Um, and they all think that by pure coincidence, Roger Thornhill, played by Cary Grant, is this guy. Um, but he's not. And so it leads to this huge, long chase sequence through uh, New York, through Chicago, through some random uh field in indiana featuring a world war ii era plane and one of the most famous movie sequences of all time and then culminating in mount rushmore in south dakota with a crazy good set piece um with some truly james bondian style like <laughs> action but yeah. like three years before the first sean connery james wow. bond was released there are and yeah there are so many similarities to the bond movies that's one of my takes i'll get into that but oh, yeah. it's it's cool that you noticed or you were on the same like wavelength of thinking about that because I it, it definitely is like an adventure movie or like a well, it's like a spy movie, but the main character isn't actually a spy, but then he kind of becomes a spy in a way. It's yeah. very cool. It's like the uh, Melissa McCarthy vehicle um, from like 2013, I think. I spy. I did not see that. It's great. <laughs> So anyways, yeah, that's a brief description, but let's get into what we have to talk about for this movie because there's a ton of thoughts. I almost couldn't narrow it down to three, but we're going to talk about our top three things that we need to discuss, whether we like it or not. It's time for Triple Shot. It's time for Triple Shot. All right, so mine is kind of short. Would you mind if I went ahead and... Uh, <laughs> And and did the first shot, which is all about our protagonist, uh, Roger Thornhill. How dare you? No, <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> I love that this uh, movie features a complicated protagonist, like so many of Hitchcock's movies. Hitchcock's kind of the master of uh, directing a fairly famous actor, male or female or whatever they identify as, um, in a role where they seem very pretentious and almost unlikable, but you somehow root for them. The entire way through and you can mm -hmm. see this in like all of his films but almost none is more like apparent i don't think here than than in um north by northwest because you know people believe it or not probably in this time period as well as in the modern day have a negative opinion a negative stereotype of advertising <laughs> and people who work in it because you're selling <laughs> yes you're literally selling fiction in a lot of in a lot of senses i mean not always, but there are a lot of exaggeration and there's a lot of um, bending of the truth when it comes to advertising. And then Hitchcock thought, what if somebody was that, but then had to experience it in a much grander scale, you know, <laughs> in, in, like you said, is a spy who doesn't know he's a spy. In my notes here, I wrote down, what if James Bond was an asshole but didn't have the fate of the world on his shoulders <laughs> and was just kind of a regular guy. I love that. And 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 it goes into this whole thing about um, you don't really think this dude is un, like likable from beginning to almost to like the end. Like you're rooting for him, but at the same time, some of the stuff he's doing, like even near the end of the film, you're just like, man, like. He, did he really just knock a guy off Mount Rushmore? This guy's kind of like, you know, and, and he's in self-defense, but he, the stakes aren't as high as like, you know, oh, there's going to be like a nuke or something like in a James Bond film, right? Mm -hmm. it, it seems like much smaller stake. And I think that that grounds him in this reality that I just find awesome. Like 
He's just so relatable in those ways because we all have days when we're like not the nicest people. <laughs> and this guy is that all the time. He's very smug. Like even when smug. he's oh, kidnapped, thank you. even when he's kidnapped, he's like, well, I guess you guys are kidnapping me. <laughs> he makes all kinds of dry jokes. Yeah. He, you know, when any normal person like you commented when we were watching the movie would be like, uh, terrified that they were kidnapped, but he's just like, oh, I have tickets to the theater. He's outraged. I'm, yeah. He's not like scared at all. He's pissed off at the <laughs> gall somebody has to kidnap him. And I just, I think that's amazing. The sense of entitlement, the sense of privilege that all of these Hitchcock protagonists have, it just colors them a lot because yeah. then you're like, uh, do I have to root for this jerk? Yeah. He's very, he, I think he's very confident too, which you know, we'll probably get into it, but I think that's why the character of Eve is a good match for him because she's equally as confident, mm -hmm. if not more confident. So. Absolutely. That's it for my first shot. Okay. um, That's a really good one. I, I love the idea of like, I didn't even think about how the fact that he's an advertising executive and they even mentioned like how he kind of is ma making lies for a living or yeah. bending the truth and that ends up becoming like a big plot point where he gets spun into this giant kind of lie or debacle, <laughs> you know, yeah. I think in what do spies do, but lie all the time. I think that's so interesting. I didn't even think about that connection, but I love that. Um, so my uh, shot is kind of related to what you've already said that picking up on the James Bond vibes, but I actually think this movie probably one of the reasons why I loved it so much when I watched it and I realized it the second time around there are so many similarities between this movie and Casino Royale. <laughs> okay, so think about it, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, let's hear it. So this smug asshole guy, right? He meets a, a, a confident woman who is actually working for the enemy yeah. <laughs> on a train. Yeah. Okay, and he doesn't know that she's working for the enemy. Casino Royale. Boom. The scene where they meet, she kind of outsmarts him and kind of impresses him with her level of confidence also casino royale right <laughs> yeah okay and then she like i said she ends up working for the enemy um but she's being forced to work for the enemy essentially like she doesn't really want to but that was kind of her lot in life kind of like vesper um and i just think you know the kind of uh travel experiences and all of that i, I just was thinking how similar this is to Casino Royale and how Eve's character reminds me a lot of Vesper in that they actually do seem like Eve and um, Roger. They actually are in love because we know at the end they get married. <laughs> like mm -hmm. that's revealed and we'll talk about the ending there. And I think that Bond and Vesper, you know, if things had worked out differently, maybe they would have gotten married. And I almost, I just see so many similarities between the two and um, like you said, there's just a lot of Bond vibes in general with the action sequences, the witty jokes, the overly confident leading man. And the suits. The suits. Yes, oh. that was one of my other possible takes, but we can just bring it into this one. The suit. Not only does um, Cary Grant look fabulous in his suits, but um, Eve, who is played by Eva Marie Saint. Yes, Eva Marie um, she also wears like an awesome suit, right? They're both rocking suits. And um, I love that. <laughs> That's like a huge aspect you and me, me both love about the Bond movies are the suits. Fun um, fact, GQ had an article of the top like movie outfits of all time or like top movie male fashions of all time. North by Northwest, Cary Grant is number one. Yeah, it's a really good suit. We'll put that link in and the description. And they really work it. Like he constantly has to like change out of it to get into his other costumes but he always comes back to it even when it's dirty it's still like part of the movie it's a fabric of the movie if you will oh yes valet how <laughs> soon can you have my suit cleaned and pressed or whatever he yeah says. and like, he they even use it to make the innuendos like where he's like oh what can a man do when he's got 20 minutes without any clothes on or whatever he says and it's such a bond line for yeah. him to say that shit but it's actually you know better than you know the roger moore shit and by um, the end of the film he's doing bond shit because yeah. he's literally like sneaking around a house like he's being incognito the whole time he tricks his handler basically yeah. like the guy who's not affiliated <laughs> with him at all he tricks him yeah it's it's so funny because i the first time we watched this and 
and Patrick and I were going on a Hitchcock kind of binge. And so we watched this not too long ago during, you know, all the quarantine, we've been watching a lot of different stuff. And um, I just was like, man, I really love this movie. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I was like, the script is amazing. The acting is amazing. It's such a fun adventure film. And like, you don't see stuff like this really anymore. Um, And then, you know, it wasn't until the second time that I was like, oh my gosh, this is Casino Royale. No wonder I love it so much. Um, yeah. There's just so much there. And like you said, he, I, I love that point that he made where at the end when he's sneaking around the house, he basically becomes Bond. And he does something, you know, out of his character by going after the woman that he loves when he realizes she's in danger, even though she's very smart and all that. It's not necessarily like he's rescuing her. It's she, he's alerting her to something that, you know, she doesn't really need to be saved, this character, which is is kind of cool. But um, he, he's kind of just alerting her to something that he information he knows, which then again goes to the spy thing. And right. um, I think that whole sequence is really cool. You know, when he drops the note on the cigarette um, packet, you know, that's very like spy-ish. Hmm. And it's just because it's Hitchcock, it's like, it's kind of cool. It's like, what if we get our stab at like, what if Hitchcock got to direct a Bond movie? Just like we always want to see like... What or, if Nolan directed, what if a, Nolan Bond directed a Bond movie? Or I, I always did want to see it, but then when I saw Tenet, I was like, maybe not. Um, <laughs> Ooh, my dream is crushed. Shots and, and of Tenet. For, for, you know, just to give you guys some context, I won't go off on a tangent. Christopher Nolan is my favorite director of all time. I love full disclosure. I love him, and The Dark Knight is my favorite movie. You know, I don't know if I've discussed this before, but Tenet, I was disappointed in Wait, that. The Dark Knight is your favorite movie. <laughs> okay. Um, what? <laughs> the point is, Holy I'm disappointed sh- in Tenet. This I want has never come up. I before. want to be able to talk about it. I don't know if there's a drink in that movie, but. We'll Robert Pattinson, now that's a tall drink right there. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, well, um, maybe we can do a Robert Pattinson series. We can do Twilight, we can do Tenet, and then we can do the new Batman, which is coming up. All right, this is getting way off the rails. <laughs> okay, I agree. I love the Bond similarities. <laughs> I think you can, if you charted like any movie on a graph of like similarity to Casino Royale, the other axis on the chart would be how much you love it. And it's like... It's a direct correlation, like yeah. how close it is to Casino Royale equals how much you adore it. was funny. It. I had this revel like this when on the train scene. I was like, oh my gosh, this is just like the train scene I love in Casino Royale, and I, I like made this. I had this epiphany. No wonder I love this movie, but I couldn't tell you because I wanted to wait to save it for the podcast. But it was a big moment for me. I was like, <laughs> why didn't I realize this the first time around? It's so good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I love that too. Um, you know what else I love? The second shot I've got here, which is Hitchcock's masterful twists. Before we had mm. M. Night Shyamalan, <laughs> before we had Bong Joon-ho, before we had, you know, any of the people that we associate with like great movie twists, or they all crib from Hitchcock. Because this guy had a way of subverting your expectations so masterfully that it just... You didn't even think like you were going into that type of movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many movies that start off as one type and end up a completely different type. Like I I think of Vertigo, for example, which starts off as, you know, a kind of regular uh, drama and then becomes a thriller to like top all thrillers, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, so true. Yeah, and, and that's just one example. I mean... Hitchcock obviously loved thrillers and he loved to thrill the audience. Yeah. But I think the ones that in this movie are just so good because they are laced entirely in this black comedy. Yeah. Just all the jokes. So I I made a comment when we were watching this movie that this movie could be retitled Irony the movie. (laughs) Hitchcock loves irony so much and just loves like watching people laugh there is even a scene in and it's a scene that i wrote down and i called it the the fbi scene and it's oh, the yeah. most important scene in the whole movie because it basically explains the concept of what is happening um where you have a bunch of uh government officials who are meeting to discuss what is happening with roger thornhill 
and they realize, oh, this guy is mistaken for our fictitious agent, George Kaplan. And they kind of give a lot of exposition in this scene. You have to watch it really to understand the whole thing. And somebody in that scene, I don't, I don't remember what the line was off the top of my head, but it's something to the effect of, man, that's such a tragedy, but why do I feel like laughing? He basically <laughs> describes irony yeah. in a nutshell, right? And that's permeates throughout the entire movie. So some of these masterful twists that I wrote down um, that I just, I mean, uh, every time you watch it, I wish I could watch it for the first time because <laughs> it, it just reminds me of how great the surprise is. Um, the house gets cleaned up for the detectives. Shortly after, he's abducted and he's oh, held yeah. overnight in jail. Um, he takes some detectives back to Townsend's house to see if, like, hey, this is where I was abducted. But everything is nice and tidy. Everything is neat. There's no liquor to be found on the premises. It's kind of eerie. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like like how I, I bet future horror films. Sorry, I sorry, I think I interrupted you. No, but go ahead. Just on that one point that you made, I feel like future horror movie creators look at that and they're like, oh, just that feeling of giving people eeriness because what, you know, what you saw and what happened to you being the main character, other people like won't believe you now. Like it, it didn't never happen to you. That, that's like a classic like way to make people creeped out when they're watching a movie. But I feel like Hitchcock kind of started that like trend or one of, was one of the first filmmakers to kind of give you that eerie feeling and the fact that it's it's just like it happens so fast like you said mm -hmm. it's so cool yeah and like one minute you're you're like wow this guy's getting really you know screwed over but you know surely they could they'll track down the owners of this house he knows how to prey on those things that you weren't even thinking about he hits mm -hmm. your blind spots oh yeah of like what you weren't even considering when you were watching a scene earlier then you think it makes you think because yeah you're like whoa I guess you could just take over somebody's house if they weren't home. <laughs> yeah. And then Mrs. Townsend. Mrs. Townsend is so funny. Like, she is. She is an operative for Van Damme. She's one of his uh, people or, or works for one of his subordinates or something. And She's she, her, his sister. Yeah, I think sister. it's revealed. Thank you. Yeah. And and she poses as the wife of the owner of the house and she's very prim and proper and she makes a fool out of Roger and it's so great because you're just like, oh, that's a great twist, but you're laughing the whole time. You know what she reminds me of? And we're talking about like his influence on future horror movies mm -hmm. is, um, I forget the actress's name, but the mom character in Get Out. Oh, uh, Catherine Keener. Yeah. Because yeah. right there, it takes place in this big, you know, nice house and the family seems like really nice. And, and she seems, the mom seems like, oh, I'm just this very like nice um, put together mom or, you know, wife. Mm -hmm. But then it's revealed like, no, there's no. some dark shit going on. <laughs> um, but it reminds me so much of that. And I just feel like so many movies have taken from that, you know, idea of, of people who can act a certain way you know, for the authorities or for other people. Meanwhile, they're doing these diabolical things. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, and then the last thing that I had written down for great twists is uh, Eve. Eve and her, quote unquote, betrayals yeah. <laughs> of, of, of Roger, you know. Um, so good. I, I feel like us, we love movies so much and specifically spy movies. I, I feel like even the first time we watched it, we saw the fact that she was coming as mm -hmm. an agent like a mile away. Right. Easy, right? But can you imagine being in 1959, not having any grasp of that? James Bond doesn't exist yet as a mm -hmm. film franchise. Like, that must have been what she was the agent. And in a time that is not like now, um, that did not, uh, it was definitely not as empowering for females in the workplace, much less in a very pivotal uh, fate of the nation type of yeah. role like that. I mean, it must have been absolutely mind blowing. But for us, it was just a really cool twist. Right. It's huge. I completely agree. Like, I think, you know, yeah, I really have to put myself in that time period because like we talked about last episode, the 40s and 50s actually had a lot of strong female characters, mm -hmm. um, you know, or in the movies. Yeah. In the movies. And um but even then, they didn't have like cool jobs or anything like this. But, you know, I think there are, there's some things where, you know, Eve has kind of had her characters had a rough past and and, um, you know, she probably doesn't like the idea that she has to be kind of the girlfriend to the bad guy um, and kind of do whatever it takes for the government. But, you know, putting all that aside, I think 
she does have like a role as a female spy that you don't see very often in that time and even in today's time like so it's very cool um and, and like you said future spy movies for sure take from that and and you have all the female love interests actually being spies for the other side you yeah. know it's basically like a trope now yeah. but do you think you they know, have conventions and then it's just like awkward like oh hey <laughs> I, I said i'd call but <laughs> yeah no, i didn't i think um so uh who created what's the act catherine bigelow yeah. she made zero dark 30 she did i think she saw this movie and she was like you know what jessica chastain would be a great spy <laughs> um because this is a joke that patrick and i made because i think that eva marie saint who's very beautiful lady um very you know awesome you know actress she reminds me so much of jessica chastain like her face i'm just like she's her doppelganger yeah um and I think that, you know, that's my joke about Zero Dark Thirty, but seriously, like, I think that her character in this movie is is very cool. You know, she, she play. you know, this was kind of one of, I guess, combining, you know, my take and your take, like, she really, you know, pushes, um, some boundaries. Carrie Grant's buttons, too. I was going to say. Um, oh, well, that's Roger, because Roger is so cocky, right? He's just so cocky. Even in the face of all this crap that's happening, he's still super cocky. But um, Eve's character is just like, you know, she was calling the shots on the train. She was basically like, you know what? I asked them to sit you here. I potentially want to have sex with you. I think you have a nice face. Like <laughs> She was just like, all right, I'm going to lay it all out hey, on the table here. Hey, let's be honest. It's a nice face. <laughs> I Yes. Um, Cary Grant has a beautiful face. And does. I think, you know, she's a great match for him because instead of just being used as like the sexual object in this movie, which she really isn't, she's she's like very put together, like I said, with her cool suit and her later like cool dress. Um, the thing that is a bummer, of course, is like she's kind of, um, you know, having to, I guess, sleep with the Van bad Damme, guy Van yeah. Damme. But, you know, I think... That, you know, if you think about it, it's just like Bond sleeping with women for yeah, queen and country. It's true. I see it because, you know, that's part of her job, I guess, in this respect. Yeah. I, I don't know if real spies do this or not, but probably not. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, in the movies, they do at least, I guess. And um, but I think that, you know, Eve always liked Roger. And so it's interesting how in this movie, instead of like Vesper saving Bond's life, like by cutting that deal, Eve actually wasn't willing to do that and was willing to, you know, basically for her job and for her country, let uh, Roger be killed. She um, was, yeah. You know, so she was actually like a very hardcore spy in that sense. She and, took her job very seriously. Uh, she was being, you know, directed by superiors and all that. But still, you know, it's it's interesting. It's a little bit more tense in that scenario. But... I guess Roger ultimately forgives her and is like, let's get married. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can get into that yeah. in the ending. Um, so, geez, is, is, um, is that it for my second shot? Or did you ever get to your second shot? I've already lost count. These Gibsons are going to work on me pretty fast. <laughs> um, I, I haven't started my second shot, but I kind of talked about a lot of stuff that, you know, um, at least I don't think I have. <laughs> I was just bouncing off what you said. Gotcha. What was your second shot? It was. I was saying that I love the masterful twists. Oh, yeah. Movie. Okay. I don't know how I got to Jessica Chastain from that, but there you go. Um, hey. Oh, the twist about Eve mm -hmm. and her job. Okay. Um, so I guess my second shot is I love how um, I love Cary Grant's drunk guy performance. <laughs> like he takes it so seriously. Like I've seen so many people, you know, who do act drunk in the way that Cary Grant did. I don't know if he was actually drunk, probably not, but he He was you know, method acting. I feel probably. like as an actor it's really hard to get that right. Like we were listening to the podcast um about the office ladies, right? And they were like the office ladies podcast and they yeah. were, um the actress who plays Pam, what's her name? Jenna Fisher. Je Jenna Fisher. Yeah, she was talking about preparing for a scene on the office where she had to be drunk and how um one of the actors from the office took her out 
uh, to get drinks and she was he was like helping her like you know when you're drunk you know you need to do this and when you're acting and I feel like that would be really hard as an actor or actress to pull that off like and I feel like um you know Cary Grant's performance is hilarious like he's so funny when he calls his mom at the station he's like no mom they didn't give me a mixer when he tells her like <laughs> that somebody basically <laughs> drugged her oh yeah a chaser yeah. and then when he's like uh, giving his consent to do the blood test, he just crawl. The guy's like, "Oh, can you know we're we're asking now for your consent to do the blood test," and then he just crawls on the table. He's just like done. He's like, "I'm just gonna sleep here in this courthouse table, <laughs> and I'm just so drunk that I'm just gonna lay out." And Cary Grant's like a huge, you know, big guy, so yeah. him just like crawling on the table like a little kid and like flailing about. It was so funny, like and like you said, that's the thing about this movie that's so striking is it's like simultaneously a comedy and um a, a thriller and like an adventure mystery like all at once you know but those comedic elements really hit even even still today and i just loved his drunk guy performance it's crowd pleasing <laughs> as fuck i love it so much and and uh, to play off of that one of my favorite moments during that whole drunk sequence which by the way guys he doesn't get drunk willingly he gets like liquor poured down his throat right it sounds kind of like morbid and awful and that's because it is and they don't show He's forcibly it forcibly intoxicated which is something that like some people try to use like as a defense in real criminal cases but it's hardly ever believed by the jury because they're like really someone actually put liquor down your throat but in this movie it actually, it actually happens. does happen <laughs> and in the rest moment i think is the face that he makes when um these these people that are working for Van Damme and trying to kill him because they think he's George Kaplan, um, <laughs> they send him down the road so that he'll drive his car off a cliff and he somehow regains control of the vehicle, kicks the guy out of the car, and, and then like barely, barely stays on the edge of the cliff, one tire of the car hanging off the edge. And then he just kind of like looks at it and he has this look on his face like, uh. <laughs> can't believe I did that. And that is the most relatable drunk face I think I've ever seen in yeah. a movie. Because if you've ever been very drunk to the point where you're doing something that you didn't realize you did, you make that exact face. 100% of the time, every time. Yeah, I think he, he just, he nails all of it, you know. So, I love that. That's a great take. <laughs> and also one of the most underrated parts is how subtle and, and good the acting that he's doing is. Um, but I, I kind of play off of that going into my third and final shot. Um, I do want to talk about Grant some more because of how well he executes on this movie's themes. Um, if you've been a listener of this show for some time, you know, I love talking themes mm -hmm. and my theme that I kind of realized for this movie that I wanted to talk about for one of my shots is the fluidity of identity mm -hmm. and how identity is all in the in the eye of the beholder, you know, it's if you can cast a certain light or or do certain things that make you perceived in a very specific way, you could be a completely different person. Yeah. And that is what he does in this movie, because for one thing, and you said this and it was really funny, um, hotels seem to not really give a fuck who comes into their room <laughs> and like asks to be let up or told who's living in what room at that particular time. Like all you have to do is make up something and be like, oh yeah, they're expecting me. Uh, what's their room number? And they'll give it to you. Yeah. And then, you know, later in time, you started getting like people realizing that stalking was a thing and that people stalked other people and you can't just give away people's hotel rooms. Yeah. If you just lie and like change like your outward perception of your identity, then people are just like not going to question it. And they're going to like not only not question it, but but watch you and believe that you're it until you like, prove otherwise. Yeah. And this whole movie is kicked off because Grant is in a, a hotel restaurant and somebody says telegram for George Kaplan. OK, the poor kid that says telegram for George Kaplan he was told to do that by these government agents to distract these people that are following him. Like, and, or he was put there, I don't think it's ever made clear who sent the kid, but either way, George Kaplan is a fictional character. He's made up by mm -hmm. the government to distract Van Damme's people. And the only reason that somebody would ever have a telegram from him is because they don't know he's not real. Right? Yeah, they were 
I think they planted the telegram as well. Isn't they're just doing all these things to make it seem like he's going about town, mm-hmm. going to hotel rooms, going to eat dinner at places to distract Van Damme from their real spy, which was Eve. And the only reason Roger gets mixed up in it is because he asked this kid, hey, I've, I've got a message that's going to come for me. Do you mind if I just come with you? And it looks like he's getting that message. Yeah, it, just, it looks like he's answering as George, George Kaplan. Kaplan. And, and it's just that small minutia kicks off this whole thing, right? And mm-hmm. and that's what's brilliant about this movie is that that's kind of the that tiny little needle thing. We clocked it. That's like four minutes into the movie. It wastes absolutely no time setting off. Yeah, I love that. And this is a long movie for this time. It's two hours and 16 minutes, which back then was a very long movie, you know? Yeah. And the fact that it starts in on the plot right away, like you said and pointed out, is very bold, but I love it. I, I love it too. Um, and then some more about the fluidity of identity. So going back to irony, it's ironic that this man who wants more than anything to prove that he's not George Kaplan ends up slowly becoming George Kaplan, yeah. the fictional spy, <laughs> the super spy throughout yeah. this movie. He, he, he gets out of a near-death scenario by not dying when he's driving drunk for, for a considerable amount of time. He finesses his way onto a train by lying about, yeah. you know, seeing somebody off uh, and then sleeps with a, an attractive person of the opposite sex. Um, he's, he fakes showering. Oh, this is one of my favorite scenes. So shortly after he escapes death again, we haven't even talked about the plane scene. Let's, you know, we'll talk about the plane scene regardless, even if we have to do it later. But, you know. The plane scene after that, he goes to Eve's place and he um, and he's in her hotel room pretending to shower, not actually showering. He's just like, yeah, I'll grab a cold shower, knowing that she's going to leave. He starts thinking like a like a spy. He starts mm-hmm. thinking steps ahead. That's and, true. and then he like, you know, does the trick with the pencil when somebody writes on a notepad and pen and then you take a pencil and kind of like you know, um, move it quickly on its side of the side of the lead so that you can see what was written underneath it. He uses that to track her address. And then, uh, of course, faking his death, escaping his handler, and sneaking into a mansion to save the the day. It's the most spy shit you can think of. And he does it all while under the guise of somebody who's trying to not be a spy. You know what? It's a masterstroke. That's such a good point. And... I think that everything that you just said made me think that the hashtag for this movie should be fake it till you make it. It's true. <laughs> you know that saying, fake it till you make it? It's I, true. That's him. Like he, he fakes it and he makes it like he ends up becoming this person. That's what they always tell you, you know, when you have um, imposter syndrome, you know, for your jobs and stuff. But I feel like uh, it, it works, I guess. This movie is an example. If you just fake it till you make it, mm-hmm. y- you're going to end up becoming who you are it's all about that confidence <laughs> yeah and and so real quick i do before you get into your last shot i do just want to quickly talk about the plane sequence that which, was my last shot it was yeah because i knew that you wanted to talk about it and we haven't talked about it so i'm like oh, we have to talk about it you're amazing okay <laughs> please go ahead and go into your last shot where we talk about one of the most iconic scenes in film history yeah i mean i feel like you probably know more about this than i do so i'll just start us off but yeah this is something that both of us, when we first saw this movie, we were like, wow, that was a really good scene. And, you know, especially for its time, but even now, it's still very cinematic. Okay, so the scene is um, when Roger gets basically sent to his death to be killed by somebody, um, but he thinks that he's going to meet um, the f- fictitious spy. Um, and... But in, and he's waiting to meet the spy and he sees a guy across the road and you think, you know, the suspense is great in this scene because you think, oh, this guy across the road, maybe he's a spy. And, and you kind of go along with Roger as he talks to him and the guy's like, no, I'm just waiting for the bus. So time kind of passes. And then, you know, another suspenseful moment, there's a plane flying overhead and and um, Roger's kind of just like thinking nothing of it. Oh, it's kind of weird. But then it just gets more dramatic and he realizes, oh shit, that plane's coming for me. It's going to hit me. Like it's going to shoot shit down at me. And so then he has to start going through like the corn fields and like all this stuff. And, and it's so that's, I mean, cinematically, the idea of it and the plot is very suspenseful. It's very interesting. But 
also when you think about how it was filmed and how it was shot, which I know, Patrick, you're also very interested in, that it makes it even more amazing to watch. Oh, I I mean, everything you just said is absolutely correct, I think. And <laughs> I mean, not only that, but um, there's so many little things that I love about this scene, too. For one, just take a like thousand eye view, or no, <laughs> bird's eye view, excuse me. <laughs> Getting my a thousand birds yeah. <laughs> looking down upon the earth. Oh boy, it's it's been a it's been a night. Um, <laughs> to take the bird's eye view of this whole thing, this whole discussion. Um, I remember seeing clips of this particular film, but it's just the plane scene. It's just the shot of Grant running away from the plane. Oh yeah, like I mean, because that's an iconic shot in film history. Like I said, but but I just remember thinking, how in the hell does he wind up there? Mm-hmm. And the setup for how it gets there is not only really like well and feasible, it's well set up, it's very feasible, it makes sense with the plot, and still, you're just like, oh, he's there. Like, when you realize it, having some of that precursor knowledge of the film, and you go in and you're just like, oh, this is going to be where it's it, but how do they do it? And they set it up even in the scene, it's like set up beautifully, because you're right. He's just out in the middle of nowhere. He's seeing, and the first shot of the plane, it's so far away. Mm-hmm. It's not threatening. It's just, oh, okay, yeah, I guess that's out here in this part of the world. It's a crop plane. There's a lot of corn. And then my favorite part of this scene is when he approaches a stranger who is waiting for a bus. And in it, it's almost like a Coen Brothers moment. <laughs> yeah. I really think that, like, that's what I felt watching this, is that it would remind me of the work of the Coen Brothers. Um, because this man is just like, <laughs> good similarity, you know, uh, he goes up to him and he says, are, are you by chance, George Kaplan? And the guy says, can't say I am cause I ain't <laughs> And just that, that, that like great line, that great line reading. And, and then on top of that, the suspense, the suspenseful line, like the screenwriter here was just. Uh, so successful. Lehman, I, I believe, is the guy's name. Ernest Lehman? Yeah. Ernest Lehman's screenwriting here is just perfect. And he worked on the script with Hitchcock with this suspenseful line where the guy goes, huh, that plane's dusting where there ain't no crops. I mean, and then you just kind of have this oh shit moment at the same time as the character. And that is why I love movies, because when you feel what the character feels, just sight, sound, all the senses hitting on all cylinders... Like, that is why we do this, you know, and that is why we talk about this so much and so passionately, I think. Um, They actually did crash a plane. (laughs) Like, you can't fake that in 1959, guys. That was a plane that crashed into an oil tanker and blew up. Oh, my gosh. That stuff is not fake. Wow. It's kind of amazing that that was even made. Um, Yeah. It really adds a whole other dimension to it, that modern CGI. I mean, it's probably better now for the environment that we're not blowing up a bunch of shit. But, you know, (laughs) it's less cinematic for sure, because you can tell the difference between CGI and real (laughs) explosions. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I, I just love that scene. I love talking about it. I'm so glad you made it one of your shots. You made such a good point about why, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, why it was such a cinematic scene is because it engages all of your senses. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel kind of like you're in a, like a Disneyland ride or like a ride, a 3D ride where you're like actually in the scene or you're playing like a first person game or something. Like you feel like you're completely engaged in this person's experience. Yeah. At our local theater, they never really show Hitchcock movies as like, you know, classic screenings or whatever, but I would love to see this on the big screen. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. I loved all your takes as per usual. (laughs) I loved all yours too. This is a really fun movie to talk about. It really is guys. We can't stress enough how good this one is. Even if you're not really into movies or cinematic uh, filmmaking or anything like that, and you just kind of want a fun movie that's, that's interesting and features some charming ass people. Please watch North by Northwest. With that, we're going to talk about the end because everything good must end. And we're going to get into the last segment of our show, appropriately titled... Last Call. Yeah.
Oh, last call. Man, the ending of this movie is also iconic, which is mm-hmm. really tough because there are a lot of good scenes already. And you'd think, okay, this movie's pretty good. If it ended shittily, then, you know, well, that would be disappointing. It's it's like you can't, you don't expect movies, especially these days. I feel like you and I have grown up with movies that, you know, don't necessarily have to be masterpieces or like stuff all the way through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've seen some great masterpieces in our time and not to disparage movies and filmmakers uh, in the in the late 20th century Don't as opposed to the, the money, money. to the mid 20th century. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean, this movie just ends brilliantly and, and the ending is also influential as hell also. Yeah. So I think, you know, I feel like the last couple times we've kind of cheated with the ending. We've drawn it out. We've talked about a couple different scenes as the ending. I think this one we should really just focus in and, and do do it the right way. The ending, in my mind, narrowly tailored, right, is just going to be when uh, he reaches for... When, uh, Roger reaches for Eve. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, I agree with you, but quick context, so... 10 seconds. That's all I want. Okay. Just to give our listeners like some context. I, I know. I'm sorry. No, so it's good. He sneaks into a mansion on top of Mount Rushmore. He's going to save Eve and he gets out with her. He manages to like finesse an escape. He's finesse king, right? And they escape this mountain, but they're chased by henchmen. And these henchmen corner them on top of the mountain, the Mount Rushmore faces. Like we're literally dangling from Lincoln's nose. And, um, they are about to die, and then they get saved by the government agency that's been helping Eve. Um, and but Eve is still dangling. Go. All right, Eve is dangling, and Roger reaches for her, and she says, "I don't something." I'm probably screwing this up, but she says something like, "I can't. I don't think I can reach or something." Or he says, "Yes, you can," and pulls her up. And well, what he says is, uh, uh, <laughs> like. Uh, that, that's like, I can't, can't make it. And he says, yes, you can come on. And then she's like, pull harder. And then he goes, that's it. That's, that's it. Mrs. Thornhill with like a, his, his like look of, of, of worry turns into like this Mm -hmm. grin, shit eating grin because he, they had earlier kind of made like a joke about getting married and then, (laughs) and then. Boom, smash cut, they're on the train that a they met train. on. A different or, train. Or maybe the same It's probably one. the same yeah. train they met on, the 20th Century Express. Um, but now you can tell that they have like gone from the mountaintop and they made it out and they're married now and they're riding on the train and they're happy. And she goes, this is silly, Roger. And he's like, I know, but I'm sentimental. <laughs> and then they just kind of start laughing. Train goes into a tunnel. Yeah, so a lot is established in that one scene, and he's lifting her up. It goes from a very dangerous moment to, you know, he's lifting her up and helping her from falling to her down death, Mount Rushmore yeah. to lifting her onto the bed of the train, <laughs> you know. And so it's again that perfect blend of like, um, you know, thriller, drama, thriller drama. with this like comedy, and you know, it kind of. It really does have a happy ending, but it's not your typical, like, let's wrap everything with a bow and show them, you know, 10 years from now, here they are with their kids and this five minute scene that we don't need. Nope. It's just, let's, we're bringing them back on the train. They, it's established that they're married because he says Mrs. Thornhill, um, you know, they make a joke and then they go off, you know, the train kind of symbolizes how they're going to go off in their life from from then on yeah. and together. And I just think that it, it's such a cool move because it take definitely takes you by surprise. You were, you're like so sucked into, oh my gosh, is she going to fall off the mountain? Like what's going to happen? And then he pulls her up and it be, suddenly they're in a train and you're like, what the heck just happened? Like yeah. it definitely mess, messes with you. You know, it's a quick transition um, but that's what makes it so good because you're like that son of a bitch, you know, like <laughs> Hitchcock, he did it again. Yeah, he got like, me again. Um, he just so had- do you think that they actually make it? You don't think that that's like in his mind a la Vertigo? 
Yeah, I think that they do actually make it. I do think it's a happy ending because especially it's established a few scenes before that Eve's had kind of a tough life. He explained, she explains that to Roger and Roger says something like, oh, is that what life's been like? You know, I think that's also a great line. Um, yeah. And she says, yeah, it's because of men like you, you know, kind of thing. And um, obviously she's had some struggles. And then to to see, you know, them kind of have a happy ending, it, it's nice. But also it's not like a cheesy ending because you have that quick transition, which makes it turn from what could have been a cheesy ending to a really cool like, you know, shocked to the senses almost, but you're still trying to figure it all out as it's happening. Um, I just love it. I think it's really fun. Um, I think it it's it's very, you know, it, it, it very, you know, encompasses the whole movie kind of because like you were talking about, there's so many different genres in this one movie and to have it kind of transition like that in the very final scene kind of, you know, ends it in the perfect way. <laughs> I I agree completely. And it's funny because, you know, um, there's some readings of this movie that think that the whole thing is a fantasy. Like mm -hmm. it's all being played out in somebody's mind. Really? Yeah, because there's no such direction as North by Northwest, right? You know, like that's fiction. And so people often think, oh, yeah, this whole thing is like somebody's fantasy. It's somebody daydreaming oh. uh, who works in an advertisement executive. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's what if Don Draper had like 20 hours to kill and just like stared out his window. So this is like the alternate window. inception theory, but for this movie? Yeah. So, okay. So maybe would the first couple scenes not be a dream? Like when he gets in the taxi cab with his assistant and then as soon as he gets to the restaurant, maybe the dream starts? Well, I would say if it was a dream, it would have to start right at the beginning because, you know, it's established that he has like a good job and a secretary and all that. So... I would think that it would be just a guy staring out of his New York office window and imagining, what if I went downstairs mm -hmm. and boom, and then the movie kicks off. Mm -hmm. But I like to think it's not a, a fantasy. Maybe it is. That's a cool way to read it. And the fact that we can have a discussion about that is what makes movies great. Um, <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, you know, I, I love this film. I'm glad we watched it for the show. And I can't wait to watch it again because I'll probably find something else that I didn't notice the first few times. It's just one of those that keeps on giving. So if you are a film buff like we are, please do yourself a favor and watch North by Northwest um, when you get a chance. So with that, I think we are all done on this film. And yeah, any other additional closing thoughts before we wrap? Uh, not on this film. I just uh, want to talk about what's coming up next week. Of course. Next week, we'll be watching a t more modern film for those of you guys who don't like watching stuff made before uh, the year 2000. Shout out to uh, You Know Who You Are, one of my great friends who only watches movies made after the year she was born. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are going to be watching Game Night from 2018. Oh. Jason Bateman and... Uh, um, Rachel McAdams. Yeah, I always seem surprised every time you announce it, but really, I I should know. I should have these. You planned this schedule. Yeah, with me. I know. We have like an Excel spreadsheet and everything, but I purposely am like clouding my mind so I don't yeah. like really remember what is exactly next. Yeah. And so every time you say it, I get excited. This um, will be our first straight comedy, oh, I think, on the show. This one is so good too because, you know, arguably, right? Maybe we'll talk about this next week. I'll be real quick on this, but there aren't a lot of good comedies made anymore for a variety of reasons. But this was one that kind of made it through, you know, yep. made it through the threshold is a modern day comedy, which we don't really get anymore. Successful modern comedies. But yeah. this one, hilarious. It's one of our favorites. And the drink we'll be having is a Harvey Wallbanger, which <laughs> makes its way into the film as a joke. We will be drinking one for real. And uh, it should be a hell of a good I'm, time excited this one's really funny i think you guys will like it if you if you watch it along along with us me too and so that's about it for this week uh please follow us on our social media platforms to stay up to date on what we're going to be doing and recipes and cool stuff for the show facebook and instagram at momix pod m-o-m-i-x pod you can write into the show at momixpod at gmail dot com if you want a question read on air or would like some other sort of correspondence hit us up foreign correspondence 
Alfred Hitchcock joke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, yes. Yeah, so Facebook, Instagram, email, and and listen to us on all platforms you know if you want or at the very least rate yeah and review us. listen to this episode on all platforms including, multiple times <laughs> including apple podcast spotify pocket casts wherever you get your podcast please rate and review us when you can drop a review even if it's just a thumbs up emoji we'll accept uh <laughs> just let us know how you feel even if you don't like us let us know too we're always looking for ways to improve with that I think uh, we're going to end it now, but thank you again for listening. And thank you again for our regular listeners. You guys really mean the world to us. Yeah, you really do. I think um, this podcast has just been so much fun to um, do together and to do, you know, have you guys join us and be a part of it has been really awesome. So thank you. Couldn't agree. So couldn't agree more or couldn't agree. Well, You're like, know. actually, I hate our listeners. <laughs> well, which I don't know. Which one is it? Uh, am I George Kaplan or am I uh, uh, Roger Thornhill? <laughs> I don't know. Until next time, I could use a drink. <laughs> yeah. I think he says that somewhere. In the yeah, movie. he does. Okay, cool. Perfect.